Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. This is episode number 167, July of 2023. Our guest this month is F.J. Hartland. F.J. is a playwright, director, and professional actor whose plays have won awards too numerous to mention in a podcast this size. His play, for the record, is the second of our 2023 theme plays on exploration. Okay, so let's get to it. On Stage, Off Stage is proud to present For the Record by F.J. Hartland. The cast is Michael Horney as Arlo and Cole Zubak as Spencer. The scene is a theater stage door in an alley in a large city. It is night. Arlo, a man in his 50s, is pacing back and forth. He's carrying a briefcase and a rolled-up playbill. Enter Spencer, a man of 30, carrying a knapsack. He's listening to music on his earbuds, maybe singing along. Seeing Arlo, Spencer stops dead in his tracks. Hello. What are you doing here? This is the stage door, right? Right. This is where you come after the show for an autograph, right? How did you know that? I think I saw it in an old movie. Wait. You saw the show. Row M, seat 16, center. I could have gotten you a comp, you know. I wanted to surprise you. Well, you did. I have friends waiting. Spence, wait. I was going to get you flowers. Not necessary. Flowers seem... What? Weird? No, not weird, just... Not right. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just, I've never given another man flowers. I don't need flowers. But you earn them. In the show tonight, the singing, the dancing. Wow, you were wonderful. Please. You were. I was off. I couldn't tell. The audience couldn't either. Everyone in the lobby was talking about you at halftime. It's called intermission. What is? In the theater. It's called intermission, not halftime. Right. Intermission. Did you hear that applause at the end? What is that called? A standing ovation. Standing ovation. So, you've got a girl? No. Oh, you like girls, don't you? Of course. Good. Some of my best friends are girls. Oh, so it's boys then. You got a boy? Some of my best friends are boys. Oh, nothing wrong with it, though. Some of my best friends are gay. Oh, really? Well, no. <laughs> Actually, that's not anyone. I am really focused on my career right now. I don't have time for relationships. That's not good, son. Make the time. You shouldn't be alone. Woman, man, dog, something. I wouldn't have gotten through life without your mother. I miss her so much. I miss her too. She saw all of your shows. Unlike you, who saw none of them. Until now. Until now. 
Your mother would have been so proud of you tonight, but she was always proud of you. You weren't. It wasn't that. I just didn't understand. I know I'm not the son you wanted. What do you mean? You wanted to be able to say, there's my son, the star quarterback. There's my son who pitched the no-hitter. There's my son who scored the winning goal. I would have understood those things better, yes. But you were the son God gave me, so long as you were happy and healthy. There's my son who, who is happy and healthy. You're right. I should have been there more, supported you more. Maybe you don't remember, but growing up, you weren't the easiest person to live with. What do you mean? My only memory of you as a teenager is you going off in a huff to your room and slamming the door, everything I said, slam, everything I did, slam. Even then, I guess I was a temperamental artist. Temperamental doesn't even begin to describe it. That door slammed so often, I'm surprised it's still on its hinges. I guess I just gave up trying. Sorry. I'm sorry, too. I should have tried harder. It probably wouldn't have helped. I can be pretty stubborn, you know. Oh, I know. That stubborn, you got from me. But your talent, your singing, well, you got that from your mother. I remember she came home from one of your shows and said to me, Arlo, I can't believe that two such ordinary people like us created a child as extraordinary as Al Spencer. She said that. That I was extraordinary? She did. But it wasn't until tonight when I saw you on stage that I really understood. You have a gift, Spencer. Your mother knew. She saw it from almost the beginning. How? When you were about two, your mother looked out the window and saw the neighbors laughing and pointing at our house. She went out to see what was happening. And there you were on the front porch, stark naked with a saucepan on your head, and you were dancing. You were a born showman, Spencer, and I'm sorry it took me so long to see that. You want to hear something crazy? I would love to hear Mom sing again. You might be in luck. Harlow takes a manila envelope from his briefcase and hands it to Spencer. What is it? Open it and see. Spencer does so. It is a small vinyl record. A record? I don't understand. The first time I heard your mother sing was in a church. You, in church. Father made me go. <laughs> My old man, that's how I learned to be a father, you know? As long as I put food in your belly, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head, I had done my duty as a dad. Those are important things, Dad. But it's not enough. Not enough to be a real father. What was I talking about? Hearing mom sing in church. From the moment I saw your mother, I knew I'd marry her one day. On our first date, I drove us down the Jersey Shore along the boardwalk. There used to be these little shops where you could make a recording of your voice. So your mother and I went into this small soundproof room. I convinced her to sing. You're telling me that this is a record of Bob singing? When your mother was done, 
I gave her the record, but she wouldn't take it. She said she'd never listen to it because she'd only hear her mistakes. That sounds like mom. It also sounds like you. So I took the record home and I played it and played it and played it. And I fell in love with her. I'm surprised the damn thing didn't wear out. I'd forgotten all about it. Found in a box in the attic. You should have it. Are you sure? My father used to say, a man is what his mother makes him. She made you what you are today. You deserve to have her record. Thank you, Dad. Then I'll always treasure it. Spencer carefully packs the record in his backpack. Arlo points to Spencer's iPhone. He won't be able to play it on that, you know. Thanks, Dad. I know. Now, how about that autograph? Don't be silly. I'm as serious as a heart attack. Sign my program. It's called a playbill. And sign my playbill, please. See, I'm not too old to learn. You have a pen. Arlo pulls a pen from his pocket. Arlo turns so Spencer can write on his back. Spencer signs with a flourish. There. Arlo takes the playbill and reads it. He begins to cry. To my dad, no more slamming doors. Love, Spencer. Thank you. Spencer suddenly hugs his father. I love you, Dad. I love you too, son. Go on now. You, you have friends waiting. I, I could call them and cancel. No, no, no. We'll be seeing each other again. I promise. Okay. Hey. What? There's my son, the song and dance man. They look at each other for a moment. Then Spencer turns to go. Arlo watches him leave. Lights fade to black. End of play. That was For the Record by F.J. Hartland. The cast was Michael Horney as Arlo and Cole Zubak as Spencer. F.J. was kind enough to give us a few moments of his time and talk about the genesis of this play. Many years ago, probably about half my life ago, I was in a professional summer stock company that was doing Maine, the musical Maine. Oh, yeah. I was, I was in the ensemble, so I played about nine or ten different parts. Um, the joke I used to say is all I do is change clothes. I spend more time changing clothes than you actually on stage. But, yeah. uh, my dad came to see me in it, and it was the last time he ever saw me on stage. He passed away probably three months after he saw me. Oh. And uh, I came down to breakfast, and he was sitting there smoking a cigarette, drinking his coffee. And he said, there's my son the song and dance man. And I, at the time I took it as an insult. <laughs> Had he not been supportive up until then or was it? He, he was, it was just, he really, my parents weren't really theater people. We didn't sure. attend the theater. And it was just sort of a fluke that that became what I was interested in doing. And uh, I was like, oh dad, you know, but uh Looking back on it many years later, I just thought it was such a beautiful thing. And one morning, I don't know why I woke up and I was thinking about that moment. And I thought that's going to be the basis for a play. Yeah. 
So that's sort of where where it came from. And then my parents had honeymooned in Wildwood, New Jersey, and they did have those recording booths on the boardwalk. Yeah, and they went in and and made a a record. And uh, we had it for years. I don't know what ever became of it, but as kids, we really got a big kick out of playing it and hearing my parents, you know, having this very mundane conversation about what they had for dinner. <laughs> in Watts. It was chicken and waffles, by the way. There and, you go. Uh, <laughs> so those sort of two elements uh, came together to, to, to write the play. I think you know, my dad would have been more comfortable had he had a son that wanted to play football and baseball and basketball and and those things. But um, you're not alone in that one. Yeah. <laughs> but looking back, it, I thought it was such a beautiful thing for him to say to me. And then when it turned out, it was the last thing he ever saw me do on stage. Yeah. More, more important to me. But he had come to other productions that you were in. Yes. Yes. Okay. He always came. Yeah, always came. Um, that one was just special. The courts, you know, he'd been sick for a long time, but we had no idea of knowing that would be the last time he would see yeah. him. Yeah, it's 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 a very touching touching moment in the play where the two of them are trying to figure out what exactly to follow. This is my son. Yeah. <laughs> with and yeah, I. I I think there was a realization there that superseded just about all of the awkwardness that came through. It was, you're my son. I love you anyway. Yeah. I may not understand what's going on, <laughs> but I was impressed. <laughs> I remember when I decided when I was a senior in college that I should go to graduate school. And uh, my father had barely finished high school. Mm -hmm. And I actually had to sit down and explain to him what graduate school was. He had no idea what yeah. what that was. But I mean, he always, whatever I decided to do, he supported me. That's um, that's beautiful. What did he do for a living? He worked for Betham Steel in okay. the corporate office downtown. Uh, when I had my first show done at Carnegie Mellon, my first year of graduate school, I remember coming down to the lobby for I'd been talking to the actors in the dressing room and I came down to the lobby and I looked down the hall and there were like people I knew, which was unusual because yeah. I wasn't from Pittsburgh and I'd only been in school for a couple months at Carnegie Mellon. And here my father had rented a bus and brought everyone we knew from Johnstown to see my first big play at Carnegie Mellon. Wow. It was, yeah, it was just such a beautiful. So, I mean, he didn't, relate to what I was doing, but he certainly supported it wholeheartedly. That's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, just to just to have that kind of support and to have that kind of love, even through not being able to understand, mm. you know, the whole phenomenon. But um, that's that's really amazing. Um. What actually got you? Was, was there anything in particular? Did you just move towards theater? Was there anything in that made you decide, you know, this is what I think I want to do? Well, I, I was I was always interested in acting. Right. And when I I think it was the Christmas I was 13, um, I got a typewriter for Christmas, which dates me and <laughs> I got one of those too so yeah yeah <laughs> and for some reason I started writing plays I didn't know what I was doing but I just started writing 
plays. And um, so the two were combined for a long time and I went yeah. to college and I wanted to be an actor. That was my, that was my goal. And the chair of our department one day, my, it was in my sophomore year, he said, let's go for a cup of coffee. And I thought, oh, this is going to be something, you know, great. So we're having coffee and he says, uh, you need to face some fat. Oh, boy. You're too short, too fat, too ugly, and too untalented to be an actor. You really should do something else with your life. And Ouch. I was devastated. I was 19. I was devastated. Oh, my gosh. So I stayed in the acting program for a while. And then my junior year, I was just like, I can't, you know, I'm being treated so badly. And at the time, the only thing that I could major in and still graduate on time was English. Yeah. I walked across the campus and said, I want to be an English major. And uh, my advisor was great. He um, was very supportive. And he was the one that then said to me, if you want to write plays, he said, I've never written a play. No one here writes plays. I teach creative writing. They're similar to a point, And I can help you to that point. But you really, if you're serious about this, you need to go on and, and study on the, the graduate level. And right. he was one who encouraged me to go to graduate school. And but the, but the funny part of the story is, of all the people I was uh, acting with as an undergraduate, I was the first, and I might be the only one, to earn an equity card and become a professional actor. So I kind of hmm. had my revenge many years after. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's what happens if you stick with it. And that's the hard thing. Yes. You know. And like I say, it, it just to have my English advisor, he was just so supportive. And um, that counts for really so much. Oh, it does. It does. I mean, I've always your people like, well, your parents were supportive. I said they were my parents. They had to be supportive. This that's not true. In many cases, that just doesn't happen. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I said, you know, someone, a grown person that wasn't one of my parents supporting me was just meant so much to me. Yeah. It so is yeah, important. It's, it, we're, we're kind of similar in this is I had an English advisor when I went back to college who was familiar with my short story and novel writing. And he knew I could write. He knew I could put words together and, and make things happen on the page. And it was very, 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 very late one night. And we were tired and uh he said you should write us a play and i said no i've never done that before he said blah 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 long story short he says if you do it i'll let you direct it next year and i was like oh my gosh uh i'm in the pilot seat let's do this um and it just clicked it was like this is what i'm supposed to be doing but it was the positive support that becomes absolutely critical because we can only do so much on our own yeah. And I, I troll a lot of the online stuff, you know, Facebook groups and other things. And one of the things I see all the time are pleas for recognition, pleas for uh, understanding, uh, please, you know, thinly disguised things. Say, please tell me what I'm doing is worth it because, you know, there are 12 theaters out there and 93,000 playwrights all trying to get their work done. So those little moments, they matter a lot. Yeah, they really do. They really do. Yeah. Um, 
I wanted to ask you something about, uh, okay. Uh, for the record, you have this little juxtaposition, which I found on my second read and dad comes to see Spence in the play and there's Spence singing and dancing and doing living his heart is really what he's doing. He's having a beautiful thing. Doesn't know his dad's in the audience. And this is, that spurs the moment where they come together. What happens afterwards is the meat of the play. But inside that, you slip this little thing where Arlo hears mom sing in church. Okay. And for him, that was the moment. And I think the two moments of coming together with his immediate family, both came through performing, both came through singing, but in one sense, they're diametrically opposed. One is in church and one is in theater. And there's so much in between them. And I find myself really proud of him. Is that a good thing to say? That's a wonderful thing to say. Um, I really wanted to make it that they're so different. But the one thing they have in common is the mother is what yeah. is the only thing that ever held them together. And then it becomes the thing that brings them back together at the end. Yeah. The fact that they both loved her so much. Yeah. That gave them common ground then to meet at the end of the play. Yeah. I really wanted the beginning to be kind of ambiguous about what what the relationship was between the two of them. I didn't mm. want you to know right away it was his father. Right. So I was trying to, you know, have some ambiguity <laughs> there is the so the audience says, well, what, what's going on here, you know? What's, because there's an awkwardness. And there's almost a, I, you know, at one point, Spence is like, I got to go. I got friends waiting. And they could have ended at that particular moment, but it didn't, thank goodness. But yes, to come around and find out, oh, this is so much bigger than, you know, an ex-relationship or yeah. something else. This is like dad and son. It's like... This is important stuff. Um, and that was the moment, I think, for me, where it actually turned, the play turned, because it was just an incident up until then, and that's where it actually started to get real. So that was, that, that was a nice... You've, I was looking at your work on um, New Play Exchange, and I've noticed that in a bunch of your plays, stuff like... Clean sheets, you know, games of the mind, scattered, and including, for the record, coming to grips with the past seems to be a recurring theme. And I think that's true for most of us in quite the real world here. Uh, <laughs> because the older we get, the more we think about things that happened. And I think many of us worry about the perspective. Many of us worry about how, you know, these, these things could have affected the last 20, 30 years of our lives. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, so I'm assuming you spend some time thinking about. I do. I sometimes I just have days where I think, how did I get to this point? You know, yeah. 
how did I get here? And I think how, you know, had I made this decision instead of that decision, would I be, where would I be instead of where I am yeah. right now? And um, so I do, I, I really draw on the past. And um, and another thing, uh, my friend Kathy said to me once, could you please write a play that isn't about death? And <laughs> <laughs> so every time I'm having a play done, I say, Kathy, I'm having this play done. Guess what? It's not about death. And she's like, thank heavens. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I think, regret about death around death losing people um things you didn't do things you didn't say yeah so um lost chances to exactly yeah lost opportunity yeah which is which is which is why i'm I'm glad arlo showed up at spence's show and, <laughs> and they patch things up <laughs> well I, I think there's a lot more patching up to go because yeah. this just opened up the well of Limitless conversation. All right. Because yeah, I just, go ahead. Yeah. When I first heard about 10 minute plays, which was a long time ago, right, I'm like, yeah. it can't tell a story in 10 minutes. This is ridiculous. And uh, in fact, when I teach playwriting, a lot of my students are like, what do you mean 10 minutes? And I said, well, think about a TV commercial. Some TV commercials tell a whole story in 60 seconds. Yeah, they do. You know, so I said it, it is possible, and I've, I've really. It took me a long time to crack the nut of writing a ten-minute play, but um, I'm, I really like writing them now. And I just like you. There's so much you can do in ten minutes. Yeah. Well, there. Are, the size of the story is. Traditionally, we write full-length plays, and they go to Broadway, yeah. or wherever. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the ten-minute play originally to me seemed like, oh, this is a gimmick. And two things occurred to me after that. Ten-minute plays are what you write in between writing full-length plays, at least for me. And some stories are best told 10, 12, 15 minutes long. It's not that there isn't more to it, but if you condense a story this big, and I'm holding my hands wide here, okay, <laughs> do a and now I'm making my hands go much closer together. You condense these lives, you condense these moments, you condense these things, these moments of drama, of conflict, to a point where you're left with really nothing except the important stuff that's supposed to happen. Yes. You really you kind of narrow it down to that. And when, I mean, I wrote this play based on one sentence my father said to me. Sure, yeah. And... I always teach my students, it's about sustainability. How sustainable is your idea? Is it a 10-minute idea? Is it a 20-minute idea? Mm -hmm. And I said, ideas to fill two hours have to be really big ideas. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I kind of like that you can take a small nugget of something, like one sentence, and, and make it into a 10-minute play. That's really all it takes sometimes is, is that, that, that one juicy little morsel where you can construct all this beautiful stuff around it and make it absolutely, the, the, the thing you have to do is make it absolutely matter. You know? And every word counts when you do a 10 Oh my gosh. There's no room, there's no room for. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, it's, I've, I found that out a long time ago. That's when I started writing. I was like, I'm a playwright. Yay. Look at this. I have stage directions and everything. <laughs> and then I was introduced to editing and workshopping, which I had not been apprised of before because nobody ever told me about, well, let's see how we can make your play faster, leaner, meaner, all that sort of thing. And to me, it was a foreign concept. Who, how dare you touch my work? Or, And then I realized as I was doing it, holy moly, this just, this is actually working. You know? It's funny, when I went to grad school, um, there were two playwriting teachers. One was Jim Rosenberg, and he was the older senior playwriting teacher. And he said to me, you know, I've taught playwriting for a long time, and I say the same thing to every student, edit, 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 yeah. edit, because you're the only one I've run across in 30 years of teaching that I say, you need to write more. <laughs> there's holes you need to fill. <laughs> wow. Well, there's a compliment. That's so, yeah, great. Yeah, I, mean, I was really like, but I, I do, I, I would much rather rewrite than write. I think writing is so hard. <laughs> Rewriting, I, I really enjoy. No, no, no. It's, I, I totally for... agree with you on this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not to say that I don't enjoy writing because that moment after staring at the computer and listening to the traffic go by and listening to the couple two tables away, you know, arrange their divorce or whatever it happens to be. That moment <laughs> when something clicks and you start typing and you think, oh, this is right. This is where it's supposed. Yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Nothing beats that. Absolutely. And sometimes it's scary because it just happens. You know? Yes, I know. Yeah. I don't know if I'm channeling something or if and I'm I, creating something, but it's it's just working. Yeah. And sometimes people will say to me, well, how did you come up with that? And I have to say, I don't have a clue. I uh -huh. really it just yeah. happened. My fingers were on the keyboard and and, it have, and God love those moments. I love to have those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where do you get your ideas? Well, I can't possibly tell you that without an hourly fee and a couch. Okay. <laughs> one, of, one of the things I, I that came to my mind, this is the last thing, um, when I was reading for the record. At the end, I was reminded of a line in a song, one of my absolute favorite songs uh, by um, Warren Zevon where he says, if I could only get my record clean, I'd be a genius. <laughs> I thought, wow, you know, if you could go back and change all those, you know, things to make them better than what they started out to be, that would be so cool. But we have to live with what we've, <clears throat> excuse me, we have to live with what we've done. And yeah. In a way, it's a good thing because that's drama. It is. That's where drama comes from. Yeah, and complexity, and that's what makes us who we are. F.J. Hartland, this has been so much fun talking to you. And oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Good, I did too. This is. I love your play. For the record, is just absolutely thank wonderful. You. And <laughs> I hope to see more of your work, and I hope we get another chance to talk again. I would love that. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify.
If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, stay safe, be careful, not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>